Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, 10 houses of refuge were built in Florida between 1876 and 1886 to help shipwreck survivors. We'll talk with author Sandra Thurlow. So many people are enthusiastic about lighthouses and even the life-saving stations that are uh, elsewhere in the country, but the poor houses of refuge are just not appreciated as far as their importance. The Florida Historical Society is hosting a conference cruise that leaves from Miami for Key West and Cozumel. These annual meetings are are just a great place for a lot of uh, people to get together, and we really look forward to having this kind of mixing of a lot of different people, and and a cruise ship is a great place to do that. And we'll talk about an exhibit on the American Bicentennial at the University of Central Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Sandra Thurlow has written a series of books on the history of the Indian River region of the east coast of Florida, including Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge, Home of History. Her latest book, co-authored with Timothy Dring, is called U.S. Lifesaving Service, Florida's East Coast. The book looks at all of America's houses of refuge, which were all built in Florida. Ten houses of refuge were built by the U.S. Lifesaving Service between 1876 and 1886 to help shipwreck survivors. Sandra Thurlow. Well, it's surprising how uh, sparsely it was populated. They called it a howling wilderness, especially the lower East Coast. And uh, so when shipwrecks happened, uh, the survivors usually came to shore or got to survive that far, but then their life was in question because there was no way to find civilization to get food or water, and they didn't know which way to go. And so after storms, the keepers of the House of Refuge would walk in either direction and look for survivors. Sumner Increase Kimball led the U.S. Lifesaving Service from its creation in 1871 until it merged with the U.S. Revenue Cutter Service in 1915 to form the U.S. Coast Guard. 
He was a brilliant bureaucratic supervisor, and he was, it was his brainchild because the uh, embryonic life-saving service was in terrible shape and wasn't functioning properly, so he envisioned uh, a properly run one, and he was working in the Treasury Department, and uh, he uh, envisioned a reformed, improved life-saving service, and he was in charge of it the whole time. He had it such uh, divided into districts, and there were always reports, so there's voluminous paperwork surviving. Under the direction of Sumner Increase Kimball, the activities of the Houses of Refuge were quite well documented, including detailed annual reports. What's interesting is when I connected with Timothy Dring, and he is the president of the uh, U.S. Life-Saving Heritage Association. It's a national group. It's not a large group, but it's a very effective group. And on their website today, you can go and you can go through all the annual reports. So you get all that primary documentation. And uh, it's so improved from the days of yore when you had to go to microfilm. Thurlow and Drang assembled hundreds of photographs for their book, U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast, while written records for the Houses of Refuge were plentiful, photographs were not. Sandra Thurlow. Each one is precious. And uh, for instance, a few years ago, I was here at the Florida Historical Society giving a talk, and one of the people in the audience gave me a lead about a person who was in the Coast Guard, and that was what evolved from the life-saving service. And uh, I connected with this man, Wally Wallace, and got two more precious pictures. Each one is precious. And another big find recently was because of Florida Frontiers. I heard an interview of a granddaughter of a House of Refuge keeper, Samuel Coutant, who had been a keeper for 22 years at the Mosquito Lagoon House of Refuge. And this woman had been 87 when she was interviewed by Janie Gould, but, and it was like three years later that I listened to the podcast, and uh, Janie said, oh, I have her phone number, and I called her, and she's perky, and my husband and I visited her, and she had the first ever uh, pictures I had of the keeper in a uniform doing day-to-day activities at a house of refuge. So that's an example of just building uh, a few at a time, the photograph collection. In addition to the 10 houses of refuge that were unique to Florida, there were also life-saving stations here. The houses of refuge were manned by a keeper and his family, while the life-saving stations were staffed by professional crews. While Thurlow's book focuses on Florida's east coast, she does include the Santa Rosa Island life-saving station near Pensacola. I included the one in Santa Rosa because it was the only one besides the one on the east coast of Florida, in Florida. And I also included uh, the Sullivan's Island Coast Guard Station in Charleston, close to Charleston, South Carolina, because that was in our same district. And so it involved involved the same uh, men. They went back and forth and crew members at the Sullivan's Island uh, life-saving station became keepers in Florida. Today, you can visit Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge in Stewart. It's on the National Register of Historic Places and is preserved as a museum. Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge is the only one of ten still standing.
Yes, it is. It's been uh, something I've continued to do. I won't give up because I think it is one of the more important parts of really early Pioneer Florida. And that's my primary interest, the really early days in Florida. And it's just not appreciated. So many people are enthusiastic about lighthouses and even the life-saving stations that are uh, elsewhere in the country. But the poor houses of refuge are just not appreciated as far as their importance. And they form such a structure for the governmental presence in Florida when there was nothing here. So people at least had that. Houses of refuge were unique to Florida. In the late 1800s, even if shipwreck survivors made it to land, conditions here were formidable. Coincidentally, the most exciting time ever in a house of refuge was right there at Gilbert's Bar. And it was in October uh, 1904. There were two shipwrecks back to back, and there were 22 men put up in the house of refuge. As a result of those shipwrecks, quite a few casualties involved. But uh, one has become an underwater archaeological site right off of the Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge. People dive on it, and on a calm day, you can see a bit of the, the wreckage uh, from the House of Refuge porch. But uh, two ships, the George's Valentine and the Casado, wrecked within 24 hours, I would say. Shipwrecks didn't happen every day, of course. The 10 houses of refuge in Florida were mostly occupied by families, and daily life could be slow-paced. Sandra Thurlow. I don't think daily life was so bad for the keeper, but for the wives, I just can imagine the loneliness and um, the hunger for other women to talk to, and that just didn't exist at the time. So uh, shipwrecks were very seldom And so it was just um, cooking, doing the duties of any housewife, and being lonely, and doing everything under hard conditions. And for our particular house of refuge, which is right on the ocean, uh, it must have been hard to cope with just the salt spray all the time. There are many stories of individual keepers of the Houses of Refuge and their family members in the book U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast. Thurlow's favorite story is about a shipwreck survivor named Axel Johansson. And this is his story, that he was Norwegian and he was in a shipwreck off of Chester Shoal House of Refuge. And he washed ashore with little life left in him. And uh, he passed out as soon as he got to the sand. And two daughters of the House of Refuge uh, came and discovered him and told their parents, and they nursed him back to health. And he went back to Norway. And um, it was the days of sailing ships dwindling, and his life had changed, and he remembered Florida and the good reception and care he got in Uh, on Cape Canaveral, really, and he uh, came back and married one of the daughters. And I never had a picture of the daughter. And she was um, a a descendant of a lighthouse keeper at Cape Canaveral Lighthouse, and her mother had only known being at the lighthouse or at the House of Refuge. And I didn't have a picture, but I did just get it, a picture of Kate Johansson, Kate Quarterman, Johansson last fall, and it's included in the book. When the U.S. Coast Guard was formed in 1915, it took control of the Houses of Refuge. 
I think there were eight that were still standing then, and they became Coast Guard stations, and they all received a number. Like, for instance, the Gilbert's Bar House of Refuge was 207. And so Albert uh, Axel Johansson happened to be keeper, and Kate, the woman I just described, was uh, the wife there. And uh, so he became surfman number one, and she stayed there and cared for the crew. And for the first time, there was a crew at the House of Refuge instead of just being a family. And that was true with the other ones at the same time. They had a crew. And you have to realize uh, World War I came pretty soon. And so there were additional duties of surveillance and walking the beaches for security reasons. After World War II, Florida's coastline was becoming much more populated and the Houses of Refuge went out of service. During times of war, the Coast Guard is under the Navy, the control of the Navy, and uh, so they had to patrol the beaches during World War II also, and also look for airplanes and, and keep their eyes out for everything. Uh, and so uh, afterwards, they were decommissioned, and every single one of them is in public land now. Sandra Thurlow and Timothy Dring are co-authors of the book U.S. Life-Saving Service, Florida's East Coast, which covers the history of our state's unique houses of refuge. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to watch archived episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. You can subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and find great books on Florida history and culture. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, the Florida Historical Society is currently taking reservations for a Florida History Conference cruise. 
Yeah, that's right. The 2017 Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium will actually be held on a Carnival cruise ship. You might think that that's kind of unprecedented, but we actually did this back in, in 2013. Now, generally, the Historical Society for many decades has held an annual meeting in a different Florida city throughout the state, and we do that in between uh, the cruise years. But in 2013, we kind of had this idea because it was the 500th anniversary of the naming of the state, uh, coincided with the 1513 expedition of Ponce de Leon uh, when he sailed up the east coast of Florida and actually named our state, first sighted the mainland. Uh, So we took a cruise out of Port Canaveral, about halfway up Florida's east coast, to the Bahamas. And then on the way back, we were sailing in the path of discovery, which was the theme for the 2013 cruise. Now, on board that cruise, we held uh, academic lectures. That was the symposium part of the conference. Uh, But we also had some onshore excursions uh, when we landed in the Bahamas. So uh, we're doing that again for, for 2017. But this year, we'll actually be uh, departing from Miami. So we'll be leaving from South Florida, visiting Key West uh, and Cozumel, Mexico, and then, of course, sailing back uh, to to Miami uh, over the course of the next few days. So we'll be departing on uh, May 18th. On Friday, May 19th, we'll actually be in Key West. And as I said, in 2013, we had a few uh, shore excursions. So we'll be visiting Harry Truman's uh, little White House, uh, which is there in Key West, the American writer Ernest Hemingway's home in, in Key West, as well as a few other wonderful sites. Uh, and then on Saturday, May 20th, we'll actually be uh, in Cozumel and we'll visit the uh, Maya ruins at Tulum, which are absolutely spectacular. Uh, and on the 21st, we're, we're back at sea. Uh, and that is when the symposium will sort of take over. We'll be doing lectures in between the other uh, sites as well. Uh, but we will be continuing with the, the academic lectures uh, on board the ship. And then on the 22nd, uh, we're returning back to Miami. And the theme for this cruise is Islands in the Stream, exploring history and archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. And there's some uh, really great speakers. Who's going to be on board? That's right. We're really excited this year to have Dr. Robert Kernstein, who's a uh, political scientist from the University of Tampa. And he'll be talking about his book, Key West on the Edge, Inventing the Conch Republic. This is a great book. It actually won uh, an award from the Florida Historical Society. It's a fascinating study uh, that looks at the history of Key West and how that history has shaped the way that America looks at this very unique city within the United States. Now, of course, we know Key West is off of the mainland. It's actually very far uh, away from mainland Florida, both geographically, but also in terms of how we understand its place in, in Florida history. Now, we've talked quite a bit about that in different segments, you know, of course, on this program. But if you look at the way that that city has changed over the course of the last few centuries, even, and what it's become today, Robert Kernston does a great job of capturing all of that history in this book, Key West on the Edge. But we're also excited to have Sandra Starr. She's a uh, senior researcher emerita with the Smithsonian Institution, and she has uh, really taken the theory of a cross-Gulf travel or contact between uh, ancient Maya people and the indigenous peoples of the Gulf Coast, including Florida, and she's really brought that into the 21st century with a lot of really interesting uh, cutting-edge research that kind of helps to bolster that theory. And she'll be speaking on that topic, which again ties in with this year's theme and ties in with the um, the itinerary when we actually visit some of these sites that she'll be talking about. So uh, really, really excited to have both of these guests. But along with the keynote speakers, 
as I said before, the Florida Historical Society annual meeting and symposium is really rooted in academic rigor. I mean, it's all about sharing research and uh, sharing kind of the cutting edge of what's happening in Florida history research. So along with the two keynote speakers, we'll also uh, have some really interesting sessions on, of course, the history of Key West, and that uh, includes both the political history, the, the uh, literature history. Uh, we're talking about 18th century Florida. Uh, we have a great session on Florida in the 21st century and, and how Florida law has evolved in the 20th century into the 21st century. We'll talk about uh, territorial Florida history. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about Florida culture and how uh, Florida's rich and diverse culture has evolved uh, over the last five centuries, um, but also kind of bring that up into the 21st century and talk about history and new technology and how, um, how this technology is changing in the 21st century. And Ben, you're actually going to be uh, giving a presentation on board ship, right? Well, that's right. I'll actually be talking about a uh, digital history project that uh, the Florida Historical Society is launching that essentially takes items that are in the collection. And, and what we're doing is curating and creating uh, digital exhibits on our website. So we're going to kind of talk about some of the methodologies and the theories behind the emerging field of digital history and public history and how that fits into traditional histories and hopefully a, a wonderful discussion about where we can go from here. So, uh, you know, these annual meetings are, are just a great place for a lot of people. Uh, people to get together from um, various professions and working at different universities in different areas, and also people who are not involved in academia who are simply interested in history. And we welcome those kind of discussions and, and really look forward to having this kind of mixing of a lot of different people. And, and a cruise ship is a great place to do that. Sure is. Sounds like a great event, Ben. Thanks. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. The theme of the 2017 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium is Islands in the Stream, Exploring History and Archaeology in Key West and Cozumel. The conference cruise will be held May 18th through 22nd. More information is at myfloridahistory.org or 321-690-1971, extension 205. That's 321-690-1971, extension 205. This is Florida Frontiers. The American Bicentennial was in 1976, and an exhibit at the University of Central Florida commemorates that milestone. Here's more from Mike Burke, a student in the public history program at UCF. Dr. Crapeau was on a trip with his family 
during 1976, and they saw some of these items that were really themed towards you know the second anniversary of the United States of America, and he thought they were kind of interesting that they would see like this this concept was expressed in like reusable packets of sugar or you know in disposable cups or the you know the Concord jelly that you would get at the diner, and so he kind of tasked his students when once the semester started to kind of collect some of these items some of the more interesting pieces that we have in the collection. So we have some expensive pieces that would be like, you know, glasswares and things like that, that I assume that people spend some money on. Like the soda cans, we have a collection of 50 soda cans that when stacked properly, they make a picture of Uncle Sam pointing at the person looking at it. That was Drew Fulcher. He helped to curate an exhibit at the University of Central Florida on bicentennial items. These items celebrated the 200th anniversary of the founding of the United States. Dr. Richard Capro was a recently hired history professor at the university, when in 1976, he asked his students to collect items celebrating the Bicentennial that year. Later that same year, the items were on display in an exhibit titled Bicentennial Junk. He and his students collected over 200 items, and the public history program here at UCF decided to display them to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the original collection. I guess after the year dwindled down and people stopped celebrating or stopped printing the stuff, Dr. Capote just kind of set it aside and he kept it in his office for 40 years. And then when he retired, he donated what he could to the library. And I guess on a number of occasions, he tried to uh, give his collection to the library. They never really wanted to take it or they only wanted to take very small bits. That's when we were tasked with the idea of trying to create an exhibit almost to celebrate Dr. Capote's time here as well as like exhibit his, his collection that he put together 40 years ago now. That I don't think it's ever really been displayed for anyone to see. And and then, you know, we put the exhibit together in trial and error and getting everything together, finding places and then, you know, being kicked out of places or having ideas and having our ideas shot down or having bad ideas. We had a, a good number of bad ideas. So I think it's also important to note that Dr. Capote isn't the only one that's done this. There's um, a number of other academics that have put together bicentennial junk collections as well. And um, I think that while... F- you know, 40 years later may not be the most opportune time to display it. 10 years from now, we might have a different like kind of interpretation of all of this and what we're thinking when we get to uh, 250 years of America. Here, he tells me how the items speak to what it meant to be an American in 1976. Finding it's really connected to uh, like the time period in and of itself in terms of containment and Cold War ideologies. It's this idea of like instilling nationalism during a time when there's not much to be proud of in the United States, I would say. You know, Nixon just recently got impeached, rife with scandal. Uh, Gerald Ford is now the president, and now we're coming up on something, and we need to uh, begin like, reconstructing what it means to be American, what it means to be great. And so we need to give people something to celebrate. And it's the shift from kind of celebrating America as it exists in 1976 and not so much what it was in 1776 shifting the the interpretation of American identity to include consumerism and all of those things that make up the Cold War ideology, all of the, you know, the 50s television stuff and the fast food and mass produced goods are all major parts of this exhibit. I think that becomes to be like, it's a way of using those ideas as creating American culture and redefining what it is to be American. The curators refer to these items as junk. A lot of this stuff if we were going to the store today, we would just pick it up, use it, and throw it away, like the toilet paper or the soap, right? We don't think to save any of that. Boxes of cereal and the Kentucky Fried Chicken box, all of those things are kind of trash, almost junk. They're what some people would call clutter. Or, you know, if you looked at this from an outside perspective, you could see that Dr. Crippo was hoarding these things for 40 years in his office, and then he's finally able to, to give some of it to the library and then show some of it off. I think the idea that it's junk is really kind of funny in that we place so much value on like antiquity and the idea that something's old, so it's important. 
I don't think that this stuff is important because it's old. I think it's important because it shows us something about a specific place in time. And I think the use of junk there, kind of interesting in terms of what we're discussing and how a lot of this stuff is just trash or, you know, use items, but it's saved and it becomes special because of its relation to that period in time. That was Drew Fulcher, and I am Mike Burke, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook. You can also listen to this program as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.